0: please bring your Bibles again uh, in, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians together. A sermon series titled, One Body, Many Members. And so we've uh, just spent the last two weeks working through 1 Corinthians 5, and today we get to move into chapter 6. But let's get started today by considering uh, a few elite groups. Groups where, because of the honor... Because the honor of being accepted into these groups, the effort and the pursuit of excellence only increases all the more once these people enter into these opportunities and responsibilities. So one example. Being accepted into medical school. Uh, Did you know that 54% of all applicants uh, to medical school get rejected by every school they apply to? 54% of applicants get rejected by... Every school they apply, that means they're going to none of them, if you make sense. And then when all that math is done, the final statistic for med school is 15%. Only 15% of students who aspire to become a doctor, only 15% of students who would start out in pre-med studies actually make it all the way through. How about an athlete? An athlete who would get offers and sign that letter of intent and and gets that full ride at a D1 school. Uh, This is actually quite uncommon. Less than 2% of high school athletes will play sports at a D1 college. Less than 2% of all high school students. That's not middle school, high school students. And just for fun, let's take it to the next level. How about being selected in the draft for the pros? Don't lose hope, kids, or us adults. I'm younger than Tom Brady, so there's still a chance. (laughs) Okay? Don't lose hope, but only one out of every 1,860 high school basketball players will play in the NBA. If you're doing the math, that's 0.05% five hundredths of a percent. How about something else? The Navy SEALs. The Navy SEALs. I learned this this week, uh, that half of all Navy recruits, just Navy recruits, half of them express an interest in becoming a SEAL. However, only 6% of those interested meet the entry requirements to the program. So of all the people who come, only 6% of them can even get into it in the first place. And by the way, just for comparison, if if salvation was this way, and if man were to step up to the table and say, I have an interest in being a Christian, how many of us would qualify to enter into the program? Yeah, 0%. Good. All right. You guys are ahead of the game here. That's good. So really, uh, theoretically, only 3% of all Navy recruits have a chance of even entering into the SEALS training. And then, only 25% of those in the training complete it. One out of four. So of all the people entering into the Navy, only three-quarters of 1% will become SEALs. That's an elite group. Okay. All of these people who were selected for these special honors had to work hard just to get there. Often in ways that the rest of us would find peculiar. We look at them, we see all they're doing, we're saying, are you crazy? While we sit around eating our bags of Doritos. But for that person who has their eyes set on that prize, all the hard work is worth it. And then when the day comes when they receive that letter, they get that phone call or they have that meeting in the office and they hear those words, congratulations, you made it. Guess what happens to their desire, their pursuit of excellence? It only grows. It only grows. And they succeeded. But now the real work begins. Now that they're a SEAL, now that they are a med student, or now that they are a D1 athlete or a pro athlete, now the real work begins. And they have to work that much harder, in part by necessity, depending on what it is they're being called to do, and in part motivated by their passion for the mission at hand. Now, in the real world, sometimes that added pressure thins the herd out even more, doesn't it? There's a difference between someone who wants to say they were a SEAL and someone who wants to be a SEAL. There's a difference between someone who wants to get a scholarship offer and someone who wants to be an athlete. And there's a difference between someone who wants to get into med school and someone who wants to be a doctor. And when these people have worked so hard for so long and they achieve these honors, you know what happens? They become identified by what they're pursuing, what they've been pushing so hard to do, what they're becoming. When a guy becomes a SEAL and and someone asks him, hey, what are you? What's that guy going to think? I'm a Navy SEAL, right? Uh, When a player's name gets announced by the commissioner at the NBA draft, On draft day, what runs through that young man's head besides, I'm going to be rich. The other thing they might think is, I'm a professional basketball player. When that young man or woman walks across the platform and receives their diploma and then gets their first place of practice, they say, I did it. I'm a doctor. And then who they come to identify themselves as and who others identify them as, obviously and appropriately must then be in line with what they do and how they function as people. Navy SEALs fulfill their missions like Navy SEALs. Yes, doctors practice medicine like a doctor. Professional athletes play sports like a professional. This is neither brain surgery nor rocket science, is it? Which, by the way, those things ought to be done by brain surgeons and rocket scientists. Your actions, the way you function, the way you live, the way you talk and act and interact with other people ought to be in line with your identity. This is why... When the Apostle Paul started out this letter to the church in Corinth, he referred to the recipients, the church, as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Paul reminded the church in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, right at the beginning, that they were a people who had been set apart from the rest of the world, that they had been made holy and that they had been brought together into this special group. And I'm going to let you know, I'm really hoping that you noticed a massively profound error in this illustration this morning. Something that makes becoming a SEAL or a doctor or a professional athlete significantly different than becoming a Christian. It takes blood sweat and tears sacrifice to become a Navy SEAL but it took the one who would sweat blood and then shed his blood in our place in your place for you to become a Christian that's vastly different Navy SEALs set themselves apart from the rest. Doctors pursue perfection because they're expected to perform their tasks to perfection. Professional athletes work to become elite in order to be counted among the elite. Christian, you have been set apart by God. You have been made holy. You have been placed together into this group that is the body of Christ. None of us earned this. It was given to us. This is God's grace, his unmerited favor. But it's no reason to take anything for granted. And it's no less our identity. This is why we remember who we were, and why we behold the glorious love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so just like all those other people who do come to be in those groups, let's get to work, right? Not because we need to get in, but because we're here. And we've been called to this. This is what, uh, what Paul's doing here. This comparison in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. Uh, So we're actually going to start working through this passage today, starting at the end instead of at the beginning. We're going to start right in verse 9. So I'm going to start reading now in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9. Paul writes this, Or do you not know That the unrighteous, and this use of the word unrighteous, uh, that we're seeing here, we're gonna see this, it refers to the typical conduct of the person, but also, or even more so, their standing. Are they in Christ or are they not? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And and by the way, the implication here is, if the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, what will the righteous inherit? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. But let's take a few minutes uh, moments to discuss this list of sinful practices just to learn what's being said in this list and also what Paul is saying about this list. So the first one, the sexually immoral, refers to the sexual sin of a person prior to marriage. Second, idolaters are those who would worship other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. Number three, adultery is sexual sin outside of your marriage. And so both uh, what was called the sexually immoral and the adulterer are committing sexual acts with someone who is not their spouse. And again, whether in the heart or with the body, according to the standards that Jesus gave. The differences between these two, the sexually immoral, that term is used for someone who is not married, and the adulterer is married. So just to be clear then, uh, because we forget this sometimes when we're talking about such things, uh, sex within the union of a husband and a wife is not bad. However, sex with someone who is not your spouse is sinful and destructive. Uh, Hebrews 13.4, the marriage bed is undefiled. And so when a man and a woman have been told their whole lives, stay pure, stay pure, stay pure, And then they've said their vows and the ceremony is over. They are not then preparing to lose their purity. They are remaining pure and participating in a holy unity which God has given for marriage, for this relationship, for procreation, etc. Does that make sense? A bride who goes to her wedding day does not lose her purity that day. She remains in her purity. And the husband as well. So we need to teach our kids that. Okay? Um, the next one, it says in the ESV, men who practice homosexuality. And as we might think, uh, this is a direct translation. We might think it's the direct translation of one word, but it's actually two words with different meanings. It was translated this way in the English. And I'm going to try to explain this in a way that is not grotesque, uh, which is kind of hard to do given the nature of this sin. I'll just refer the, to this in Romans 1, that exchange of glory. There's also an exchange in Romans 1, uh, when men left the natural relation with a woman, ex- exchanged her for a man. So the two words used in the Greek here in this passage refers to both men individually, who are involved in this homosexual act uh, even specifying the one who have who would have replaced the natural role of the woman okay it's both people who are specifically mentioned in the greek words here and the word for that man the one who has replaced the natural role of the woman is sometimes translated in, in english translations as effeminate the effeminate and this word it seems could carry beyond this specific act this sex act, and include also everything from dressing up as a woman to transgenderism to pursuing man's attempt at physically changing your gender to become a woman. Um, All of those things would go hand in hand with the replacing, the exchange of a man for the role of the woman, okay? So that's all that's going on in that part of the verse. The next thing, I'll just put them together, thieves and greedy, thieves and the greedy. Uh, these are those who want what others have. The greedy could also be translated as covetous. Okay, And the thieves, of course, they just take it that next step further by actually taking what they wanted to get from someone else that they didn't previously have. Uh, drunkards is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, this prefer- refers to people who are being intoxicated by alcohol, though it certainly wouldn't exclude being under the influence of other drugs. The reviler, reviling, is using our words, our speech, to fight, to, to tear down and hurt other people. Uh, Ephesians 4 instructs us to let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. The reviler wants to corrupt and to destroy with their talk. Including, we should think about this, including reviling those who are committing the other sins listed in this passage. It doesn't become okay to revile when the people you're reviling are doing other sins. Does that make sense? We forget that sometimes. And the last one, swindlers. Swindlers are like thieves who steal from others, but they do it indirectly through manipulation, bad deals, defective products, things like that. Uh, if you get an email from Africa promising to share half of, half of their wealth with you if you'll just give them your bank numbers. Don't respond to that. That's a swindler, okay? Don't respond to those. Now, these lists are not exhaustive. Meaning, when Paul writes a list of sins like this, this isn't the only place he did it. He isn't saying that only the people who are involved in these specific eight to ten sins are the ones who are unrighteous, and everyone else who practices the rest of the sins are okay. That would be a wrong interpretation, wrong application. He's not saying that. Quite probably, what he's doing here is pulling out sins that would have been particularly characteristic of the Corinthians culture. And yes, these sins were characteristic of, of the Corinthian and Roman cultures. Okay, I read this week the 14, 13 of the 14 or 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were known to be practices of homosexuality. It's just common knowledge. Okay, this is normal for them. Uh, but Paul was using this list to sum up the different types of unrighteous lifestyles that would have been most familiar to his audience. Make sense? So, someone might say, whew, I'm so glad I'm not like that. Verse 11. And such were some of you. Now, even if you made it through this list in 1 Corinthians 6, unscathed as it were, we could take a minute and look through maybe the Ten Commandments or, or some other passage, and we'd remember this, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all starting from the same place, aren't we? We are all starting dead in our trespasses and sins. But but God, but you were washed. Even if even if you put your faith in if you have, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your stain of sin has been washed clean. You were washed. You were sanctified. God has set you apart and is changing us to be just like Christ. Paul says you were justified. We were declared not guilty. And then given the righteousness of Jesus Christ put to our account. We've given this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. God did this for you. And God did this to you, Christian. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, loved us and made us alive together with Christ. So this is now our identity. This is now our identity. The old has passed away. The new has come. We are new creations, having been born again, walking in newness of life, and all the other analogies and metaphors that God has given us to teach us, this is now who you are, and what you are becoming. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, who are you? What are you? What is your identity? And if Navy SEALs fulfill their missions like Navy SEALs, and if doctors practice medicine like doctors, and if professional athletes play sports like professionals, then what do followers of Jesus do? They follow Jesus. What are Christians like? Who are Christians like? Well, they're more and more like Christ. Christ. Right, That's what a Christian is. And listen, we're together here. We're in the church building today. The church has gathered together. We're studying the Bible together. We're being all righteous and stuff and singing good songs and we're praying together. And it's kind of easier to think right and to do right and want to keep learning and growing when we're together, isn't it? Hmm, maybe there's something to learn there. But also, tomorrow's Monday. I didn't have to check the internet for that one. Tomorrow's Monday, and you might be in the midst of a whole different crowd. And what is right here may be wrong there. And what we call good, they might call evil. But who are you? And who are they? And the world is full of people who are made in the image of God, and whether they believe what we believe, they should be treated kindly and respected. But who are you? And who are they? Now get ready for some more rocket science, okay? Professional athletes, they don't tend to ask mom and dad coaches from the Parks and Rec League for tips to improve their jump shot. Do they? Nobody's ever called me. Uh, Doctors don't generally alter their entire philosophy of practicing medicine based on an old episode of Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Doesn't happen. Navy SEALs, they probably don't pick up a ton of strategy from kids playing Fortnite in their PJs on Saturday morning. Wouldn't make sense. So why would we, the body of Christ, ever feel like we need to go to the world to decide how we ought to live. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Why then should we ever let them tell us what is right and what is wrong? When our eyes have been opened... When we have the Word of God, and we have the Spirit of God. Church, we are in a different category. By God's grace, through this gift of faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone, we now have life and the light of God, and he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So then why would we who are alive in Christ be asking dead people how to live? Do you understand this? Does this make sense? If so, and we're going there whether it does or not, I'll answer any questions you have later. Let's go now back to verse 1. Okay? And, and, and we're going to get there in a little bit. All, you all... Obediently put your hands down there. But in first Corinthians chapter six, verses one through eight, we're going to see the occasion for Paul's reminder to us in verses nine through eleven. In other words, the church at Corinth was doing something wrong, and Paul had to remind them of why they should do what was right. And the wrong that they were doing, they were suing each other in the civil courts. Christian suing his brother in Christ in the civil courts. And the civil courts and the judicial system, just to give us some background, in Corinth was a bit different than how we would do things around here, as you might expect. Whenever there was a dispute, three arbitrators or attorneys were assigned to the case. One to represent each of the parties in the dispute, and one who was supposed to remain neutral. That was the case. If that didn't fix it, if it wasn't resolved yet, the case went on to a court of 40, that was the next step. And then if, if the dispute still wasn't resolved, the trial went then onto a jury court, it was called, of which the jury could have consisted of hundreds or even over a thousand jurors. That might sound like a lot of jury duty. And it was. But the people back then didn't mind. The people there didn't mind. In fact, the people then had they'd come to see these kinds of cases as a bit of a sport, they, they loved the challenge, and they were entertained by what was happening in these cases. And so, as it would make sense, the people, um, the people back in those days, instead of watching and binging their favorite show on Netflix, they'd go to the courthouse, and they would watch that. Instead of people groaning when they got a special letter in the mail like we often get today, it was perfectly normal to see crowds of people waiting outside of the courts, eager to be selected to serve. And even if they weren't elected to serve, if if they weren't selected, they still wanted to get in, sit in, and enjoy the show. Okay? They weren't standing around the water cooler chatting about the latest episode of their favorite sitcom with their coworkers. Instead, the next day, they were chatting about the latest civil suits and who they thought should win. And if you think about it, uh, when people are watching Judge Judy or or like Jerry Springer or something today, which at the doctor's office a couple weeks ago I saw Jerry Springer wearing a judge's, uh, what is that? But anyways, people watching those shows, they aren't really watching them because they have a sincere desire for the well-being of the people in the courtroom. Correct? What they're watching for is the spectacle. They want the shock value. And those people are being used to get ratings. So we can understand all the more why Paul would be shocked to find that the Christians in Corinth were being talked about for sport around town. That their inability to settle their differences would be the subject of so many conversations amongst unbelievers who needed to see the light of Christ. So with that in mind, let's go to verse 1. Paul writes this, When one of you has a grievance against another, so one brother or sister against another brother and sister in Christ, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous, the world, instead of the saints, the church? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The saints are going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? And Paul's argument just went from the lesser of the matters of this world to the greater, judging angels. Angels. If we are truly joint heirs with Christ, and if we are going to rule and reign with him, this includes the angels. That's amazing. Isn't it amazing that we're going to judge angels? Angels. But if we are going to be judging angels, he says, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? Paul is reminding the church here of who they are, their identity, who we are, church. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are going to rule and reign with Christ. We are not the world. We have been set apart. We are the saints. We are sanctified, called to be saints together. This is a group thing. Therefore, if this is who we are, if this is our identity, what reason do we have to go to the world to help us settle trivial disagreements and differences? For that matter, why are there unsettled differences? Paul's going to ask this as well. Uh, That kind of issue continuing to fester within us and the need to get the world involved to make it possible for us to figure it out. That makes no sense. Verse 4. So, if you have such cases, such cases meaning civil disputes between one person and another, these are not criminal cases, these are not cases that are required by law to take to the courts. If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? And the answer to that question is that there should be people wise enough amongst us. In fact, every member of this church should be growing in godly wisdom in such a way as to help one another if called upon. If called upon. Okay? And there may be some go-to people. right? There may be some go-to people, but that doesn't mean that everyone else is off the hook and can remain in their unwisdom. We all need to be growing in godliness and wisdom to be able to help one another. Listen, every one of us counsels. Every one of us counsels. The question is just whether it's good counsel or bad counsel. And we all ought to be growing in that. Verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Uh, Because of the shame that this kind of lawsuit would have on the name of Jesus and the name of the church, even if you win in court, you lose. And because we've been called to be saints together in the church, even if you won in court, we all lost too. And so Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? The cause of Christ in the name of the church is more valuable than whatever it is you think you're owed by your brother. Verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud. Even your own brothers. And I think what Paul's saying here is this. Why are we even talking about this? <laughs> why are we even talking about this? Why would any of you have reason to take each other to court in the first place? Uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's happening here? What seems to be the disconnect? Why are you living like the world, doing unrighteous things to each other? Do you not know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You see how that goes right back into verses 9 through 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So, now how do we put all of this into practice? And my pre-answer, the answer before the answer, is that we shouldn't have to put this into practice. This shouldn't even be. Uh, We're followers of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't treat each other in such a way that a court would have to get involved to solve a dispute. But it happens, doesn't it? And we also need to be ready to weep with those who weep. We should never assume that both parties wanted to go to court or refused to settle the difference or refused to come to the church for help. Can't assume that. And we also need to remember this. It is impossible for a divorce to occur in our country without the courts getting involved. That's the law. You don't violate the law. And not everyone who's divorced wanted that to happen. So let's be quick to listen and slow to speak. First Corinthians 7, we'll get more into that. I'm not going to go there today. It would also be good to remember... This passage is not addressing criminal cases. It's not. If someone is breaking the law of the land, it isn't my choice or yours whether or not the government will execute the proper justice. If you get a speeding ticket, don't you say that Christians shouldn't go to court. Wrong application. You get in there and you pay your fine, okay? Uh, Sometimes, though, and apologize, okay? Sometimes, though, people go far, far beyond that. And they misuse this passage to prevent someone in the church from being arrested. Sometimes even when that person is sinning in a way that is hurtful to them. And that would be a very wrong application of this message. If someone is doing unrighteousness in a way that the court case is going to be called, John Doe, insert the name, versus the state of Michigan, if that's the name of the court case, you let the state of Michigan decide what to do. It's not your call. It is not loving and it is not godly to allow criminal activity to continue. Especially when someone else is being hurt by that activity. And is there any kind of criminal activity that isn't hurting someone? I can't think of any. It is a shame when two brothers can't resolve a dispute between the two of them or with the help of the church and then they go to the courts. It's another shame when a Christian is aiding and abetting a criminal. And it's terribly sad when that Christian is the one suffering as a result of that criminal activity. So I've heard people say this. Well, I think God's working on them. I think God's working on them, so I don't want to turn them in quite yet. But Romans 13 calls our government authorities, like the police, our judges, these people, God's servants for your good. So if a person is committing a crime, let God work on them by allowing his servants to do them good. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves, Hebrews 12, and he can use the police, he can use a judge, and he can use a prison cell to do just that. So please do not twist the scripture and seek to restrain and withhold the loving discipline of God from others. Okay? Another thing to consider. Uh, This passage we read today, 1 Corinthians 6, happens to follow 1 Corinthians 5 which gave us some good instruction on church discipline. So let's apply that. Let's think about this. If a person in the church is committing crimes, or if a man in the church is divorcing his wife for unbiblical sinful reasons, or if a member of our church is taking a brother or sister in Christ to court and suing them over an issue that ought not to be and that we could help to resolve, which we can, If things like that are going on in the church, what do we need to do? We need to step up in love for the sake of the ministry of of Christ here in this place and mourn for that sin and pray for that person and plead with that brother or sister to repent and when... And if necessary, according to Jesus' instructions, in obedience to our Lord, and for the good of that person, and for the purity of the church, we need to remove them from the church. Because they aren't living the way Christians live. If they're living in unrepentance. Listen, we fail a lot of people who are suffering if we're not willing to step up and love both of them, and do what's right. We will fail them. Okay? They need us to act. If Navy SEALs fulfill their missions like Navy SEALs, and if doctors practice medicine like doctors, and if professional athletes play sports like professionals, then what do followers of Jesus do? We follow Jesus. Church, What we're a part of here is special. Do you believe that? What we've been called to is unique. And it's a higher calling. Do you believe that? We're no better than anyone else. We're no better than anyone else. There's no reason for cockiness. There's no reason for pride. But God has graciously sanctified us he has set us apart in christ and called us to be saints together we're going to be made to be just like christ we are going to be joint heirs with him we're going to rule and reign with him even over the angels we're going to live forever in the presence of god God has given us this calling that's just beyond what we could have ever expected. It is certainly beyond what we could have ever earned. And he accomplished this through the sacrifice of Jesus. Not your sacrifice. His. We didn't work hard to get to the point of salvation. The real work isn't just beginning. The real work is already done. Praise God. And the day, though, that you became a follower of Christ, that was the day your identity changed. That was the day. If you're here today and you've never heard this message of the gospel, you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, today can be the day. If you're here and you don't know what your identity is and you don't know that you're in Christ, know this, he died on the cross for us in our place to pay the penalty of our sin. The Bible says, if you will call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Turn to Jesus. Become a follower of Christ today. And church, we need to know who we are. Christian, know who you are. Know what you are. Let's together pursue what God's making us to be with our whole heart. It's worth it. And together, let's strain forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of our upward call, Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this calling to which you have called us. Father, forgive us for taking it lightly, for thinking it's not that big of a deal. Perhaps thinking so much of the reward in the end that we forget what you've called us to in the here and now, to live in this place as Christians. Lord, help us to remember that you didn't take us to heaven the moment we prayed and the moment we repented. You have us here for a reason. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts that we might desire to strive to run this race, to strain ahead and to press on for Christ-likeness unto holiness. And not in an attitude of pride, not thinking that we're better than everybody else, but in a right spirit of humility that matches the humility that Christ exemplified by taking on flesh and dying for us on the cross. And God, may we remember we've been called together to this special task and we've been called to do this together. And may we value deeply, sincerely, genuinely uh, the powerful, wonderful truth of your word that it would be precious to us that that as opposed to studying and considering and meditating on the thoughts of man and what they might think of us in the workplace or in the school building or wherever we might be, that we would give greater diligence and study to what you think and to know that we're yours. And so that, God, instead of um, walking into a place and hoping they will accept us, that we could walk into a place and hope that they will repent and that will be they'll be accepted by you that we would come into a place and shine the light of Christ. God, use us for your glory in this way. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.